0: the responsibility and the accountability of the church. This is Revelation chapters two and three. So we're picking up the pace a little bit. Uh, There's a chart, the chart of the churches, the seven churches of Revelation. Okay, there's there's a very straightforward way of looking at the content of these two chapters, a chart-like approach to the strengths, the struggles, the instructions, and the promises of the seven churches of Revelation. And that's something that you can and many of you are going to do. So even though you may be like a student right now wanting to take a long look at the answer sheet, it's not on the screens anymore. So podcasters, you didn't miss much. Because today, rather than spending time filling out the chart together... We're going to go through this content, or rather than going through this content systematically, there's a few unique insights that we can glean from the whole, and we're going to train ourselves to keep these things in mind, and then a couple of key insights from the content. And as always, if you're still very preoccupied with seeing chapters two and three in a chart-like way, there's Google. There's online resources, study Bibles, where you can find charts like the one I just found if you really need that answer sheet. You read through these two chapters and they can feel very familiar, like other New Testament epistles, New Testament letters, and that's consistent since at its core, the book of Revelation is a set of letters to local churches. But the difference in Revelation is unlike the other epistles, it's who the letter is from that really makes this one stand out. We've got epistles from Paul and James and even John, but this one is letters from who? Jesus, the glorified Christ. John is the scribe, but the content, the, the insight and the encouragements, they come directly from Jesus himself. Even more than that, these are love letters from a groom to his bride a groom awaiting his bride. Revelation 19, seven through nine, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Revelation 21, two, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Hosea 2, 19 through 20, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. What we are reading in these next few chapters, they can come off as, as courtroom findings if we detach from the intimacy of and the heart of the groom. This is a groom with unwavering love for his bride. A God with unwavering love for his people. In chapter three, verse 19, he will say to the church in Laodicea, and by extension to all, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Now we bristle at that a bit, especially in our enlightened, modern, relational viewpoint. But this is a perfect in love, perfect in insight, perfect in response God, presenting his beloved with critically necessary encouragements and challenges. All that to say, when God writes this, the content in these two chapters, he's writing it in love, in unwavering love for his bride, any prophet or preacher from Pastor Derry to Francis Chan to Billy Graham to John Mell, I just wanted to include my name in that list, can try to drop a message to the people of the church in a way that fits perfectly. And by the grace of God and with God's leading, we can do our best and being guided by the Spirit. But this, what we're reading in Revelation 2 and 3, is perfect insight. The perfect Words, the perfect message, at the perfect time. He knows exactly what the struggles and the challenges of these church bodies are. And he knows exactly how to give them instructions and challenges. And then beyond those real people with real challenges, these messages are also extending following the church, the church that is to follow, the church that is to come, Remembering that in Revelation, when we talk about the seven churches, it also represents the church people as a whole, you and me. So that's what we're reading here in these two chapters, critical, precise, insightful words from the glorified Christ to his beloved church. And then if you look at the first words of chapter four, if you have your Bibles or, or your opened up to a Bible app, look at the first words of chapter four. We're not gonna cover them today, that's next week. But you're gonna see that the shift from the content of these two chapters, two and three, to what starts in chapter four is enough to give you spiritual whiplash. Where the content of these chapters feel like epistles, the shift with chapter four launches us into what I call the meat of Revelation. It's abrupt. If we're not careful, it almost feels like they're different letters. Like John was doing a certain thing in chapter one, two, and three, and then got distracted or overcome and and did something else for the rest of the book. But when we read through the meat of the apocalyptic unveiling of spiritual realities that that are superimposed over history-based realities, in chapter four and beyond, that is all still part of the critical message that God intends for his people. Revelation as a whole are the letters to the seven churches, not just chapters two and three. It's all part of what he wants them to understand and see and change and use for encouragement, endurance, and worship. So for this week, when we pick up Christ's words to each of these churches, and their situations, how about we pause and reflect that there were seven churches to write to? I mean, look at how this message and this movement of Jesus has spread over just the course of one lifetime to significant multitudes of people spread across Western Asia, uh, modern-day Turkey. Impressive. But it had to start to feel like, uh uh-oh, it's getting away from us a little bit for John and the other leaders of the church. Because if you've read ahead or if you're familiar with the content of chapters two and three, you know there are some serious issues in the church, some serious things that they're facing. People that have lost their first love of Jesus and by extension of the people around them we see that the people of the church are tolerating cults in their midst. They are tolerating blatant false teachings and idolatry and immorality and maybe even worse of all, they're spiritually lethargic. They're spiritually apathetic. The riches of the world And the comforts of the world have made them spiritually impoverished and just lazy. Not good. This expansion is losing a lot of the integrity. What I like to think of like the spiritual quality control that it had that's so critical to the spreading of its message and its movement. If I'm John or I'm any of the church leaders at that point in time, I'm asking serious questions about whether the expansion of the church isn't actually diluting the whole message down to nothingness. Are we losing it here? Is the expansion watering this down and it's losing its core? Might be something to call back or or rein it in or something. But that's why it's essential to remember what we learned last week. What did we learn? Who is responsible for this whole thing? Jesus. Who's the head of this church? Jesus is the head of the church. He's in charge, and when there's, living correction, or when there's living correction and repentance that's called for, he's alive. Like we talked about in week two, when something needs to be said to the people of the church, he speaks, like we see this week. Jesus is the head of the church. He's in charge, and he will speak. And he does speak. This is his epistle. He does completely see everything that's going on, and rather than just washing his hands of the whole thing, he speaks. So in a moment, pretty briefly, so that you will still have work to do in in sorting through the exactness of the content for each of these churches, I'm going to look at an overview of the churches and and where they had particular strengths and struggles, and then some further notes to draw out from that. But I'm also going to bookend this brief overview by sharing this encouragement or invitation for you to ponder, where a person or a church or a season might resonate with any of these particular messages to these particular churches. When you feel like, hey, that could have been written to me, or man, I feel like our church, or the church is in a season like that. Where you feel like you resonate with any of these particular messages, that's something for you to really go back and study. Focus on the message to that specific church. Use resources, use a study Bible or commentaries. Like I said, if you feel like, man, Jesus's description to that church sounds like it could have been written to me in my situation, then go deeper with that. What he says to Laodicea or what he says to Ephesus or Smyrna, follow that. I would really suggest that you, in that particular season, you grab commentaries, maybe like that book that I suggested, uh, week one, seeing Revelation through Old Testament eyes, and spend some extra time on those passages. Grab a journal. Reflect so that the love letter from the groom can be active and effective for you, like he intends it to. Probably, by the way, avoid the temptation to always identify yourself and your message with Philadelphia. The reason is, that's the one church he has nothing bad to say about. And if you're sitting there going, man, I feel like God's message to me is I'm doing everything right. If that's where you're at, it may be the case, but it's probably only really going to be proven or refined if you're going through extreme trials. That's when you'll know. That's when they knew. Okay, to the angel or the messenger or the representative of Ephesus and Smyrna, and Pergamum, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea, write this, John. So we'll start with Ephesus. We know a lot about this early church, this this group of believers. So because of that, I'm able to spend a little more time in Jesus' message to these guys. It was the most significant city in the Roman Empire of these seven churches. It was the fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire, behind Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. And the followers of Jesus had their, this significant city right in their missional crosshairs. Jesus sends out his people to be conquerors in his name with their swords, the word of their testimony, and the truth of his kingdom, and even the blood of the persecuted. All of that would be used to conquer Ephesus. Ephesus was this mighty spiritual clash. This is what a battlefield looks like when we wonder what would the cosmic forces at play in conflict and clash with the kingdom, if that's what's going on cosmically, what would a battlefield like that look like? Ephesus is exactly what it would look like. And reading Acts chapter 19 And chapter 20 is a great way to see what what would that scenario look like? How would it play itself out? And then, of course, the New Testament book of Ephesians. There's a lot of familiarity we can develop with the real people and the real struggles and the real opportunities there. To his people in Ephesus, Jesus says, keep up your good work. Endure the persecution that's pressing back against you and make sure that you have a solid foundation all while you're remaining in your first love. Because here's what I see, guys. After the founders of your churches have died, those that are now picking up things in their stead, they're losing their zeal. They're losing their passion. Maybe they're doing church things and even reaching the community around them, but, but Jesus actively sees their motives as corrupt. And how do I know that he's accurately seeing them? Well, it's the glorified Jesus. How he sees things is the definition of accuracy. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What a reward. We're gonna really look at that in week 10. And first off, you can't, in, this, in these words to Ephesus, you can't miss the militaristic nature of language here in his message to them. Jesus is a conqueror. His kingdom is in a battle. His church then and now is engaged in a battle. And this would be blatantly obvious to the people of the church enduring persecution like the Ephesian believers knew all too well. I said it week one and it'll continue to be true for us throughout Revelation to the point that once we start getting tired of saying this, maybe we can at least recognize that we're remembering it, that Revelation was written in and to an environment of heavy, heavy, persecution. They knew they were in a battle. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If, if heavy persecution was the first key to remembering Revelation, do you remember what the second was? It draws heavily from the Old Testament. The tree of life, we learn about that back in the garden, back in Genesis the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's Genesis, that's the Garden of Eden. There were two trees in that perfect expanse that we translate the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating from the tree of life represented eternal, unending life with God. And then of course, eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, the realization of that, we know how Adam and Eve Did with that one, but as a reward for the conquering church, those who were a part of his church 2,000 years ago in Ephesus and for you and me today, anyone that has an ear, let him hear what Jesus is saying to the church. There is a reward that the glorified Christ grants us to regain access to that tree and its fruit and pleasure from that tree. Paradise, a restored heaven and a restored earth, a fresh heaven and a fresh earth, eating from the tree of life and thus living forever with God. Sign me up. (laughs) Let's be conquerors for that. Let's endure for that prize that is before us. Okay, we don't know as much about, or at least I don't know as much about the other six churches. And for those of you that are excited to fill out your charts with the content of the strengths and instructions and and so on, I won't fill it out for you like I did there with Ephesus. But with the persecution background and drawing heavily on the Old Testament, just look at the ways these early believers are called by Jesus. Smyrna believers you're enduring poverty for the sake of your faith. How rich that makes you in the kingdom. Church in Pergamum, this message is coming to you from the one with a sword. Ephesians 6.17, Hebrews 4.12, and Revelation 1.16 set the basis that the sword is an offensive weapon, Of the kingdom, the word of God, the message wielded not by hands like the world fights, but by words, testimonies, truth and grace and love. And then he says it again twice to the church in Pergamum the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword, and then also, I will come to you soon with war against them, those that do not repent, those that do not turn and heed my warnings with the sword of my mouth. We may not like tough love challenges from Jesus. Many people prefer the God that just leads us beside still waters. But when the people of the church are openly tolerating cults and permitting false teachings On theology, on the things that God has very clearly given us to understand and take seriously by His word, then the church back in Pergamum and still today is lovingly and seriously and directly called by the glorified Christ turn around, repent, change your ways. Thyatira, people, you're constantly improving. So make sure you, too, continue to endure and take serious the corrections that I'm giving you. Sardis believers, we got a problem. There's only a few of you that are even spiritually still alive. When spiritual lethargy, spiritual laziness started to creep into your life, that was your critical symptom that you're dying and you paid no attention to it. Your laziness in faith was a gateway drug to now being unfaithful. I love you, and I'm writing this to you because I need you to turn back to me. I'm not done pursuing you. Don't be done pursuing me. Philadelphia, my Philly people, you are the apple of my eye. Okay, I know he doesn't say that phrase. If you're, if you're thumbing through your Bible and going, I don't see apple in my eye. No, he doesn't say that phrase. But based on the strengths and the points that he makes to these people and the fact that he doesn't mention struggles, it allows me a little cool uh, detour right now uh, to share a side note that I learned um, a while back listening to a Bible Project podcast. Psalm 17, verse 8 says, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Deuteronomy thirty-two, ten. he kept me as the apple of his eye. It's a saying, it's an endearing description, Hebrew description that paints the picture like this. This is so cool. When you are really, really physically close to someone, like awkwardly close to someone. You can see the image of yourself reflected in their eye. I mean, you have to be really close to the person to see this. Maybe try it with the person. No, never mind. Bad idea. But there's actually a translation problem here because somewhere in our English words, We got the word apple, the apple of my eye. Okay, I can see my reflection in a person's eye. What does apple have to do with it? Well, unfortunately, not much because the original translation, when you translate it literally, says the little man of the eye, the little person of the eye. When you are this close to somebody that you can see a reflection of a person in their eyes, that's how closely God watches you and cares about you and sees himself reflected in you. The little man of the eye, I love that. And again, judging by by the encouragements that he gives to the church in Philadelphia, I think it's almost appropriate that he says, Philadelphia people, I see myself in you that close to watching how you're living, and I can see a great representation of myself in you. And lastly, Laodicea. I got nothing good to say about you. Uh-oh. <laughs> you're not even rebellious, Jesus says. You're just blessed. You're apathetic. You're not hot or cold. You're not distinct from the world around you, but you're not even living that worldly either. I almost wish that you were. In fact, I do wish that you were one way or another. You're bland. And he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. <sighs> Any chance that there's ever been a season in your life where you've been like that? You're, you're not distinct from the world around you, but you're also not living a worldly life. You're just going through the motions. It's pretty harsh, but it's, it's necessary to hear the accurate, insightful, perfect words of the glorified Christ to his beloved people when they're living just spiritually apathetic, just bland, lukewarm. In fact, it can be pretty harsh, but necessary to hear all of these insightful, perfect words of the glorified Christ to his people whenever we're resembling any of these seven churches, or maybe six, because it's not that harsh when we resemble Philadelphia. And so let me repeat, when a person or a church or a season finds ourselves representing one of these seven churches, when we feel like God's words to those churches might as well be God's word to us in this season, pay attention to that, lean in to that. Let the person who has ears hear what the Spirit says to these seven churches, So I want to end this week with something he says to the last church, Laodicea, and by extension to all of us. This is such a cool ending. We've already pointed out in in chapter 3, verse 19, that he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. We've already heard that, that, that his Reproof and his discipline comes out of love. And then uh, this in verse 20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. This is Jesus standing at the door, knocking. It echoes uh, what Jesus said in his earthly life from his most expansive sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it'll be open. When you come and seek me and you knock at my door. I will open to you, he says. But this in Revelation is is the other way around. Here we see Jesus standing at the door and knocking. Jesus is at the doorway of your heart. Is he a guest to you? Someone that that should be welcomed and, and treated with great hospitality, but they're a guest, they're not staying. He's welcome, I'll smile when I'm around him, but, but he's not at home here. I don't really know that much about him personally. He's just a guest. Jesus is at the door of your heart. Is he a guest? Jesus is at the door of your heart. Is he a door-to-door salesman? He's got something he clearly wants me to have. He's selling me something. He's trying to solicit something. These types of conversations are almost always awkward. (laughs) Just get done with your spiel, Jesus, and let me go on with my day. I'm not really buying what you're selling. Jesus is at the doorway of your heart. Is he a salesman? Jesus is at the doorway of your heart. Is he a guest? Is he a salesman? Or is he master of the house? Delight springs from your face and your heart when you open the door and see that he's there. To say, come in, welcome, it it hardly scratches the surface because this place is his anyway. He's the master of the house. An invitation is just a mere formality, this is his home. Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Is he a guest? Is he a salesman? Or is he master of the house? Revelation, what a great book. What a great love letter, isn't it? Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to these churches. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's study. If you're interested in giving, for ministry and service information, and much more, visit our website at TimberlineChurch.org. Have a great week, go be the church, and let love live.